Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investments and helping you stay ahead. Following two consecutive rate hikes, the Bank of Canada has kept its key interest rates steady at 5%. How are higher interest rates affecting today's fixed income landscape and which factors are delaying the impact of rate hikes? Fidelity Portfolio Manager Shri Tella joins us on the show today to answer these questions and provide us with his outlook on Canada's bond markets and the indicators to watch for as we head into the fourth quarter of 2023. Shri notes that while inflation remains a concern, signs of economic slowing are emerging, giving the Bank of Canada room to observe and evaluate data before making further decisions. Shri and host Pamela Ritchie also discuss the resilience of the Canadian economy the complexities of the fixed income landscape amid higher interest rates, and the factors delaying the full impact of rate hikes. Shri suggests that the economy's robust performance is partially due to fiscal spending, built-up savings, and pent-up demand. The interview also covers the potential effects of rate hikes on mortgages, consumer spending, and the broader economy. Shri emphasizes the importance of being cautious in the current market environment, as investors might become complacent amid the ongoing positive economic trends. This podcast was recorded on September 7th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Okay, so first of all, why didn't Governor Macklin move yesterday? As we got to the meeting, it didn't really come to, uh, as a surprise to the market. I think while inflation continues to remain a concern, and they alluded to that yesterday, uh, the biggest thing is we are starting to see signs of the economy slowing down. I wouldn't say things are turning negative, but you know we're starting to see some headwinds uh, surface. And uh, you know if you look at GDP numbers for the last quarter, they were negative. You know you're seeing some easing of labor market stress, although labor market still remains in very good shape. And uh, and I think some of the lagged effects. The, of higher interest rates are starting to sort of peak out and, and surface. And I think that that affords the Bank of Canada some time to wait and see how the data evolves and then think about what their next step will be. And so I think they were, while they aren't necessarily done yet, and I think that was indicated in the press release, I think they're now in a mode where they're going to kind of take it data point by data point and then decide how they need to act going forward. Now it's really data dependent. Before they were actually just moving. Yes. Yep. <laughs> now it's actually dangerous. The complexities you can help us understand of essentially the resilience, the reason that we're, we're looking at not a severely impacted economy at all. We're, we're in pretty good shape. Take us through some of the complexities of why we sit here with this situation. I mean, we've talked about a number of things in the past, but the, the biggest thing was sort of fiscal spending, built up savings, pent up demand, all sort of prolong the impact of, uh, of higher rates on the consumer. And so you went through a period of time where uh, there was a lot of government support and central bank support that flooded the markets with liquidity and, and gave the consumer a reprieve from the pressures faced through the pandemic. And as we emerged from the pandemic, that excess savings was really something that filtered into the economy and fueled sort of the strength that we saw. 
And, and even as rates go higher, the, the built up savings, the wealth effect and so on have really supported the consumer and the economy going forward. It's still and, there? And it's still there. And okay. you know, we're seeing, I think in the US, you're starting to get back to more pre-pandemic or closer to pre-pandemic levels in, in Canada. We're actually still, despite the, the, the thought that Canada is more interest rate sensitive because of debt, levels and and the more structure of the mortgage market, you're actually seeing savings at a bit more elevated rate than pre-pandemic. It's not because we had longer lockdowns. We had really long lockdowns. Yes. Yeah. And that has, I, that has uh, been part of it. And, and, um, and, you know, the structure of fiscal stimulus and how it was um, passed on through to the, to the end consumer and things like that, all those have an impact. Um, and then you've also had just a very strong um, you know, labor market in Canada, uh, immigration fueling um, things as well. And so that's putting more money into the economy and supporting things. And so, so all of those um, are having an impact. And then you can get to the rate side of it as well, um, thinking about mortgages and so on. And we've talked about mortgage rates resetting and refinancing, but, you know, especially it reiterated with talking to the banks these last couple of days, is that the bulk of refinance and rolling of mortgages isn't really going to happen until 2025, 2026. Because mm. if you think about where the is lows and rates were. mortgages or is that, is that corporate or is that everything? So, so that's specific to, to personal mortgages. If okay. you think about the, the, the boom in housing in 2000 and 2001, sorry, 2021, as rates got really low and people started to buy houses and, and move out of this, move all, you know, move away from where they might have been to bigger places. All that sort of mortgage activity, you know, is it's really not going to roll over till we get to sort of the next a year plus from now. But to your point on the corporate side, it was also a big refinancing wave in 2020. You had corporates taking advantage of extremely low rates, even companies that didn't necessarily need the money, but just were trying to take what was essentially free money for an extended period of time. And so even if you look at the high yield market, which could be more vulnerable to higher rates, the maturity wall for high, most high yield, especially in the US is not till 2025, because a lot of firms refinanced in 2020 with five-year money. And so you know, you're still probably a year plus away before these higher rates really have a, an impact. Where it may start to have an impact now is on additional spending plans, investment, because you need to borrow additional money and now that's at higher levels. And so those are the cracks that you're starting to see um, and things slowing down. And and the consumer. So so let's say, I mean, as you pointed out, mortgages 2025 might be a big year as we start to see more rollovers. How does the consumer fare here? They're probably going to try and pay their mortgage, but what happens to the rest of the economy? Yeah. So, um, and again, this is something that the banks reiterate. So if we think about mortgages in Canada, generally in most jurisdictions are full recourse to um, to the borrower, um, even if there's not security in the house right here. And so, and, and culturally, I think many people know that Canadians sort of the first priority is to pay their mortgage bill. And, and so, so I think, and the banks have indicated that even with payment shocks on certain variable mortgages and, and with negative amortization, they're seeing consumers um, either uh, pay down balances or meet the increased payments what they're looking for, though, is the knock-on impact. What does it mean for their customers' credit card balances um, and, uh, and other consumer spending? And that's where you're starting to see a downtick. You know, spending is still up almost, I think, 18, 17, 18 percent from pre-pandemic. Um, but, um, you know, you're starting to see retail sales come down. You're seeing delinquencies on credit cards increase marginally. 
Now they're increasing from very low levels. And so we're still in a very good spot. Um, but that's where you start to see some of the pressures. Um, and so, and that's where, you know, now you'll start to see if you see more of that. And that's kind of some of the things we watch for to see if like the economy is starting to come down at a pace that, uh, um, that's going to accelerate. When we see things like the oil price jump up in, you know, in reaction to moves by OPEC a couple of days ago, that's the inflation story. It's not the core inflation story, but it, it is definitely the inflation yep. story. It's how people live their lives. Is that the kind of sh- inflation shock that you know we want to ask you about? How, how is the bank going to handle the Bank of Canada? going to handle something like that if it's sustained? I mean, the bank will generally say that they'll look through energy shocks, but a persistent shock to energy is going to impact the economy. Uh, From an inflation standpoint, it's going to potentially slow down growth if people have trouble, you know, um, you know, buying gasoline and and everything like that. Um, So but I think um, what they will ultimately tell you, though, is the 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 way to bring down demand for oil and bring pricing down is to is to is to destroy demand, which means you know being more aggressive and hawkish, and 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 so so there are implications down the road. I think if oil's kind of around these levels, and we've hovered around these levels in the past, you know we've had a recent boost, but we were we were at one ten, I think, at the peak, um, the recent peak, and and. Um, and so I think they're going to be okay if it's in and around these levels. Um, what the concern will be is if it continues to accelerate. But I, I think OPEC's done a very good job of managing pricing to kind of stay in this band where it doesn't create a major response in either either way. They're trying to keep the pricing at, at a, a level that's good for them, but uh, being wary of getting letting prices get too high. It's not something that could tip us into sort of a, a stagflation situation. I mean, that that is also a concern, hiking into a slowing economy yeah. when we have this GDP print that we saw. Yeah, and I think that while there's, you never say never, but I think that's not a base case assumption. Okay. And when you think about that type of environment, like you need labor, labor the labor market to really soften up as well. To And, and right now, there, while we might see a little bit of weakness uh, over the next little while, the labor market's still very strong. Companies, a lot of companies still have a shortage of workers. And, you know, outside of the tech sector a few months ago, especially in the U.S., we haven't seen any large scale layoffs. People had a lot, a lot of trouble hiring through the pandemic. And so they weren't able to add the workers that you normally would in such a boom. And so as things slow down, they're not necessarily going to be aggressively cutting now. As margins get squeezed with uh, higher wages and so on, there might be on the margin some trimming, and we've seen that from the Canadian, some of the Canadian banks. But it doesn't seem like there's any base case outlook isn't for a massive uh, hit to to employment. I wonder if you could sort of put into context. I mean, it, we spoke to someone earlier this week who who sort of said the single biggest thing of the last twenty years like from an investment perspective, what you need to put aside for your retirement, and so on, is that. You can have a risk reinvestment at 5%. I mean, that's, that is what the bond market is offering right now, basically. Yep. How big is that? It's a big deal. I mean, you look at we're at we're rate levels we haven't seen since the global financial crisis. Um, you know, a 5% return is, uh, in, is uh, a very good return on an investment portfolio. It's uh, 
um, and it makes other investment alternatives um, that much more less competitive. And so I mean, there is definitely a lot of that. I think. Like, is it a game changer? Would you call that? In terms of the life, the the cycle of what current day investors think about, I mean, these are rates that um, a lot of investors have never seen before, right? So especially younger investors, and and um, and I think that. The um, not only the yield that it gives you, but uh, the protection against uncertainty and volatility over the next little while, whether it's cash or, or bonds, um, you know, just gives you a lot more protection. And and you're getting paid to wait and wait out the uncertainty. So um, you may not, you know, um, get rich immediately off of five percent, but at the same time, you're. I mean, that's a rate of return that, um, you know, in a lot of investments we haven't seen over a long period of time. Are there risks to that risk rate at 5%? Well, if you're sitting in cash, uh, I guess technically yes. your money's safe and risk-free. But I, what I would say is, you know, the risk to sort of in, in bonds or being in cash, for example, is you don't benefit from if the economy does start to turn and you start to see a slowdown and, for example, fixed income starts to do well and rates have to come down, you're going to miss that, that capital appreciation from, you're, you're going to miss the downside protection of like a broader portfolio that like fixed income provides. Now, on the flip side, you know, there are still some risks to rates, uh, albeit I would argue since we're getting close to the end of the rate cycle, it, they're less of a concern, but there's still things to watch out for in the near term. And one is that we are still pricing in rate cuts for next year. And there's a likelihood that we could enter this long, higher rates for longer regime, and that has to get priced out of the market. So you could see rates drift a little more. You know, there's talk about the neutral rate of interest longer term being higher going forward because of the changes in the broader economy structure. And so that would mean you could, you'll see higher rates slightly. And then if employment stays strong and you're seeing, starting to see some uh, increase in wage, wage growth and renegotiations of contracts and so on, and if that filters into more persistent inflation, you could start to see central banks shift a little more hawkish again. So, so there are some risks to, to it, but, but overall it's hard to time that. And given the outlook and the turning in the economy or it's the signs emerging, I think that you know, earning that type of a yield is very attractive. When we go back to the mortgage story, it sounds like foreign investors look at our housing market for signs of sort of the economy's health as much as we all complain about it too. So I'm kind of curious within the mortgage market story, I mean, there's lots of inequality in housing. We certainly know that. But within the market itself, where do you see cracks of inequality in terms of wealth inequality within the housing market in terms of investors themselves who are buying houses, able to finance them yeah. or not? If we look at savings as a whole and the ability to meet higher interest rates and so on, so in aggregate, the economy looks very good. But part of that is masked by the fact that the top income quartiles have the bulk of the savings and the wealth. And so, you know, over the last uh, number, last while, we've seen lower income quintiles have uh, uh, negative savings rates increasing and, and sort of spending down and increasing credit card balances and so on. And they and would not be homeowners. And in so, most yeah, and that's data. the thing. So, in terms of housing, the the bulk of homeowners tend to be in sort of the the middle to upper income quintiles, and and then you have a subset that are sort of on the margin that's stretched, and there will be some pressure there. But if you look at it in aggregate, that's not enough to derail the economy and. But what I think it becomes an issue and gets lost when you're looking at aggregate numbers is as 
you start to see pressure on the lower income quartiles and it starts to bleed into the middle income and so on, it becomes much more of a political story because a lot of people can't afford to buy homes. And, and, and we think about homeowners, we should also acknowledge that there's also renters and a lot of those lower income people are renting houses and rent is getting very expensive as home prices and, and housing becomes more expensive in general. And so, so it's not just a home ownership issue, but it's an affordability of you know, finding a place to live. Right. And, and it becomes less about an economic concern, but then more of a political concern. And then the question is, what does the government, what's the government response and how is that going to ultimately have an impact? I see. Okay. No, it's fascinating how all of this works. Let's go back to, to rates just, just for a moment. And again, sort of how that fans out for investors. We spoke not so long ago to former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge. And I thought the takeaway from that was, he, it was a quick message, but impactful. He said, you know, when you're sitting in that chair, meeting the, the chair of the Governor of the Bank of Canada, you just don't ever want to not go far enough. And that, I mean, I guess that must be true. That That is sort of... Yeah. And I mean, the central, but the Fed and the Bank of Canada have been very explicit about very. that for a very long time, that they're going to err on the side of making sure that inflation um, is kept under control. And, you know, there's some arguments to be made about learning about some of the mistakes, so-called mistakes made in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and, uh, and I think even as things start to shift, and you saw it in um, Jerome Powell's speech in Jackson Hole, you saw it even in the Bank of Canada statement yesterday, they acknowledged that there are some impacts uh, from higher rates surfacing. But, um, you know, while inflation is well off of its peak, uh, core inflation remains sticky. There are signs that core inflation is coming down a little bit in the U.S. in certain segments, but services inflation has been stickier and also base effects are causing numbers to bump up again. Um, and, and so while statements are more balanced because they acknowledge slowdown in the economy, slowdown overseas, um, they are still focused on the fact that inflation hasn't quite gotten down to where they want it to be and that... Um, that they also need, and the, the Fed has been pretty uh, open about this, that they need uh, labor markets to experience some weakness um, and they need to have to excess demand. They need demand to uh, growth to be below trend in order to get back to their inflation target. So I mean, we've seen a little bit of that. Is it enough, I guess, is the question. Like we've seen a lot of revisions on the mm -hmm. non-farm payrolls, for instance. It is happening. It's just a, as a case of to what extent that's enough. Yeah, but what if you look at GDP growth and, and so on, it's still above trend. And they, yeah, they specifically called that out. And I think it was in the Jackson Hole speech that we're still running above trend. And so that means they need to bring excess demand down further. And, um, and in Canada, I think it's, it's the, the same thing. While you're starting to see things slow down, we're still running at a rate that is quite positive. And, you know, we'll, we will see those impacts continue to bleed through into the economy with higher rates. But for now, I think they would rather raise rates an extra one or two times too mm -hmm. far than to not do enough. And so what will happen in the market to essentially to the fixing to bonds when the cuts get priced out? Is that a when or an if? So that depends on your own personal market views, but I, I would say, yours. but I would yeah. say that uh, I think they will get priced out. Now we've gone from I think there was three or four rate cuts priced yeah. for next year to now just barely one, and um, 
And, you know, I think so the impact to the market won't be as significant because you're only pricing out one or one one hike, uh, what's say one cut, and maybe you add in one hike at most, I would think is kind of the base case right now. Um, but um, so I, I, I think that that, that that's likely to happen um, and it won't be a big dislocation or a big uh, impact to the overall market. Um, but it will adjust, and I think it'll be more a function of the yield curve shifting up a little, uh, steepening out a little bit. It'll still probably be inverted for a while, but but we, I, I don't think you'll see short rates, uh, barring you know initial one other one or two rate hikes, you won't see short rates move significantly. But you'll just have that repricing of kind of the intermediate part of the yield curve. So in terms of positioning, what what do you want investors to sort of come away from what, with? You know, what what is it that we're looking at here? There's some there are lots of government bonds that have very high rates around the world. The Canadian story in terms of areas and sectors of, of the fixed income market, what, what do you want to sort of leave people with on positioning? I guess the best way to characterize it is how we're thinking about our portfolios yeah. and, and how I'm, I'm repositioning right now. And, and so I think where yields are, I think that um, adding some duration to a portfolio makes sense. We might not be at the end of the end of sort of rates moving higher, but we're close. And if you think about the actual yield burning, you know, you look at 21 and 22, where we had negative returns in fixed income because we had a rapid repricing of rates, but we were starting from very low levels. Now, you know, we just had a, depending on your time horizon between like June till um, sort of May, June till now, uh, we've seen uh, market rates reprice in government bonds by 50 to 80 basis points higher but yet you still have positive returns in fixed income for the year. So, so you're now getting paid to own fixed income, you're being protected against that volatility, and you're adding sort of that protection to your portfolio more broadly. Um, now within fixed income, obviously there's still a lot of uncertainty and uh, um, we're maybe not at the end of rate hikes, there's still some inflation concerns and, and you could start to see some economic weakness over the next, you know, I think it's probably plays out more over a year plus, not just in the next few months. So this one sort of GDP negative negative print that we've seen might sort of pop back up again and then it might take a while yeah, rather than so, too sustained. So you could see positive or sideways sort of momentum in risk markets generally, but there is some caution to be warranted. And so so for for my portfolio's been de-risking a little bit. We still like duration and fixed income, but you know the quality of the portfolios has improved. We've reduced some of our credit exposure, although a lot of corporate bonds are still looking attractive. You're getting an extra incremental yield, but also moving to more higher quality corporates and more defensive names. The banks look very good as much as um, you know. there's been a lot of news about and in the financial sector over the last little while. You have a very high quality banking sector in Canada. And so, you know, financials look relatively attractive when you compare to sort of lower rated corporate bonds out there. Right. And so, so it's really about being more defensive. We, so I, like I said, I like yields, but, you know, being more defensively positioned in like provincial bonds, utility bonds, right. uh, uh, banks, things like that. Are we going to see perhaps into 2025 when, when there has to be corporate refinancing? I mean, is there a default cycle coming? It's hard to predict what's going to happen in 2025 because yeah. by the time we get there, we could be in a completely different rate environment. Right. And so um, I think, and you are seeing defaults increase yeah. marginally, 
Um, you will probably see that pressure in the high yield markets, especially as we get closer to that, uh, that maturity wall. Um, but again, we're starting at very low levels. We're below sort of historical averages. We might, maybe we'll go up a little bit above averages. Um, and so, yes, there will be some pressure, but, and I think that's part of the story to de-risk a little bit. But you're talking a year plus from now. In the meantime, you're still going to be earning like high yield earns a great yield. And, um, and, and so it's, it's definitely, um, but it's definitely something worth watching. The other thing is the shift towards private markets. Private credit um, means there's less of that visible in the public high yield markets. There's been a lot more private credit. So, and a lot of that stuff gets worked out behind the scenes between the private equity sponsors and the borrowers. And so you may not see the default cycle look as bad as publicly as historical because there's going to be a lot of these workouts done behind the scenes uh, in private markets. So what then for international investors, Canadian investors who are, who are making, making their money in CAD for the U.S. dollar, the differential story of U.S. rates and, and maybe the recession fear of sort of piling into the U.S. dollar. It is in a situation where it looks like they will have to have higher rates They've sort of said that, everyone believes that. We saw the dollar go higher. What do you say to those that are kind of looking at the Canadian investments, but those are, I mean, do they, do they look at Canadian bonds and US dollars? Or, you know, give us some nuance in there. Yeah, the currency is a little tricky because when you think about just Canada, US, um, the, the sort of the historical drivers of sort of that relationship uh, are not quite as strong as they used to be. Now it's really more of a U.S. dollar versus the world the story. World. Okay. So, you know, we've seen the U.S. dollar strengthen versus, um, you know, uh, the versus the yuan by, versus the yen and so on. And you've seen those countries have even had to intervene in their, in their markets more recently. Um, and I think Canada kind of gets a lot sort of lost in that sort of that flight to quality, flight to safety of the U.S. dollar and, and also, um, you know, just the size of the market. And so um, I think Canada, the, the, the Canadian dollar, I'm not a currency expert, so I, I don't like to, to sort of predict or, or uh, forecast where currencies will be. Um, but um, I think Canada, the Canadian dollar generally is going to be kind of in um in a range versus U.S. dollar and more subject to what's going on globally. Now, there are arguments to be made about, you know, the Canada's finances versus the U.S. and how that's going to impact. Um, but uh, but I don't uh, I'm not enough in the weeds to, to sort of yeah. comment on that. So what's the thing that you would say, you know, there's there's health again, we're, we're in this this. I mean, it seems like a brand new world of risk rate five percent. I mean, we sort of started off talking about that. I guess just kind of the case for that right now. And then maybe one thing you would advise investors to just really keep an eye on. So the broader case for, you know, investing in, in these in in these rate levels we've kind of covered in, in terms of just the uh, the protection it provides in, in an uncertain market, you know, higher rates will start to have an impact on the economy down the road. And so so I think where levels are right now are very attractive. Mm -hmm. the, the things that I would watch out for is, you know, I think the markets are getting a little bit complacent in that things have been good for so long and rates, people are kind of thinking that, okay, well, higher rates are not derailing the economy. And so everyone's expecting this like no landing or very soft landing scenario. And so 
I think as that goes on for longer, people will start to pile into sort of chasing risk assets. And, and so I think it's to be mindful of that their higher rates will likely have some impact. It may not be may not be like a, a financial crisis. Type. It's unlikely to be a financial crisis type impact, but it will have an impact and slow things down. And so, so I think that some caution is warranted in terms of the risks that people are exposed to in their portfolios, because it's easy to get lulled into the fact that things are going really well and we're gonna have this soft landing, but there are definitely pressures starting to build on the risk market, be, uh, side, on risk market side because of uh, the, the impact of rate hikes. Sritella, thank you very much for joining us and, and sharing all of those insights with us and, and a very timely way of what's going on in the Canadian economy right now. All the best. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.